Um, listen, we are just so grateful for the opportunity to, um, to, to, to worship with you in this way. Um, this is, it's an odd, honestly, it's, it's different. Uh, it's different than from what we're normally used to. Uh, this is actually my first time to do something like this. I think there's, there's a lot of firsts for a lot of people, I think, what's going on right now. And I, I know one thing's for sure um, that I've learned in this season is God has shown me um, uh, it, he's reminded me of just how thankful I am for school teachers. Um, man, I, you know, those of you that have small children, um, uh, yeah, I, and, and stay-at-home moms, homeschool, homeschool families, man, I just, God be with you. Get, may he show you grace, may he show you, uh, may he give you mercy, uh, and, and may you earn every uh, and may, may, may he bless you abundantly for the work that you do. You know, we're grateful for those. But we do know that things are constantly changing uh, in the season we're in right now. Um, and things are uh, constantly evolving in the news and what the CDC is telling and recommending. And, um, and so we're all um, just kind of doing the best we can. And we want to encourage our faith family the best we can. And we're trying to do that through, by, by means of videos and, and posts and emails and, and all kinds of things that we, we're trying to do to encourage our faith family. But we still can gather together as families. We can gather together even distantly and through by the common grace of the internet and... Um, we can still worship the king together. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. And that's what my prayer is for our time uh, in the text. If you, have your, uh, if you have your Bible, I'd ask that you would open them to John chapter 18. And that's where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll jump right in. We have a lot of ground to cover. It's going to be going through verses 15 through verse 40 the end of the chapter. So a lot of ground to cover. So let's jump right in. Gracious God, we thank you for your kindness. Um, we thank you for your mercy that you show us in Christ. God, I thank you for my faith family that has sent encouraging notes and letters and emails um, we thank you for the grace that you just continue to lavish on us and show us uh, during this time. And God, I just pray that right now, Father, you would speak through your word, that you would be exalted. And in a season where everything seems to change day by day, Father, help us right now rest in your unchanging character. Your unchanging um, truths, which we find in your word. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a word in the English language that drips with pain. It is the word that sends shivers up our spine whenever we hear it and whenever we contemplate it. And most especially when we experience it ourselves. And I'm talking about the word betrayal. 
When, when we hear the word, we can get a sick and empty feeling at the pit of our stomach. Because it suggests the kind of experience that is one of the most devastating kinds of experiences that any human being could ever endure. And, and everyone listening right now knows, that, knows what it means to some point uh, in their life they, they have been betrayed. And everyone listening at some point in your life has been possibly the betrayer. And we know that it takes a long time to establish trust in another person. And only five minutes to destroy it. And this is our lot as people living in a broken world with broken relationships. To be betrayed by people who were our friends, those who were members of our families, those are the ones that we have placed our trust and hope. But tell me this, how anyone who knew Jesus Christ could betray him. Yet in the biblical record that we find ourselves in this morning, John chapter 18, on this Monday, Thursday night, uh, it, this text focused primarily on the problem of betrayal. Not only at the hands of, of Judas, but also by the lips of Peter. And so John does not record the story of Jesus' transfiguration, but the other three Gospels make it clear that it was uh, a highlight of the disciples' experience with Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, Peter said at that moment, the moments uh, after the transfiguration, um, Peter said, let's pitch our tents right here, right now. For, forget about going to Jerusalem. Let's stay right here. For, uh, let, let's, let's just bask in your glory on the mountaintop. You see, at that moment, more than anything else in the world, Peter wanted to be close to, uh, to Jesus. As possibly as he could get, he wanted to be close. And he wanted to stay there forever. And even the passage that Pastor John preached last week mentions Peter. At the, at the moment of his arrest, he's ready to go to war. I mean, he pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of the servants um, of the high priest. And we're reminded at this time um, that... Moments later, things have changed. It was at that moment of Aeneas, excuse me, Aeneas, uh, that, that Jesus was taken after his arrest in verse 13. And Aeneas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest of the year, uh, of that year. So you see that the Romans had basically told uh, Aeneas that he could no longer be high priest, and so they appointed uh, Caiaphas. However, in the Jewish tradition, um, once you were appointed to the role of high priest, you were, that was a, a lifetime appointment. And so they, the, these Jews, they take, um, they take Jesus to Aeneas because they saw him as the true high priest. 
And so we pick up in verse 15. John writes, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so that the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The other disciple here, um, there's speculation, but I think it's probably John who was known by the high priest, and he was able to, to, to vouch for Peter so that he too could come along and uh, into the high priest's courtyard. Then it happens. Verse 17, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. And really, I just read that in the wrong inflection. Something about Peter caught the eye of the servant girl who was tending the gate and caused her to associate him with Jesus. Notice that she worded her question. She, she did not say, are you a member of the man's entourage? Or are you one of the Nazarene's disciples? Rather, she phrased it in this are you not one? Of, are you one of his disciples? Also, I mean, are are you not one of his disciples? Are you? Are you? Peter could have said, "Well, actually, yes, I I am," but he chose to agree with the direction um, of her question. So he murmured, "No, I no, 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 I'm I'm not." Now the servants, verse eighteen. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was there standing and warming himself. Peter, trying to be anonymous, he hid in the shadows. But he was there trying to stay warm. And this little detail is significant for John's account of, of the trial of Jesus because it points out uh, that these events took place at night. And this calls attention to the illegality of his trial, which uh, should not have been held in the middle of the night. And so when the trial commenced, verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and teachings. We don't know for sure all the sort, how these sorts of trials were conducted, but we do know that, um, that, that, the, that the person being accused... Uh, would never be asked questions. They would, never be, uh, they would never go to them to get their testimony. Rather, they would be looking for the testimony of the, uh, of the accusers and then also of the witnesses on behalf of the one being accused. But all of these procedures seem to have been dispensed and thrown out the door when Aeneas proceeded to interrogate Jesus, asking him about his disciples and his doctrine. Later on, we see the changes against Jesus, the charges against Jesus are different. Rather than taking, uh, you know, rather than being doctrinal or theological, they were political because he brings them to Pilate and they, they have to change their approach in order to condemn Jesus. But at this stage, the Jewish leaders asked about his theology. 
Jesus responded with these words. Jesus answered him, verse 20, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have, I, I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me that I said to them, uh, what I said to him, what I said to them. They know what I said. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's challenging Aeneas to follow the proper protocol of the Jewish trial. And he said, if you want to know what I teach, ask anybody and everybody who was there. Find the people who were actually there. And so what I say in public, I say in private. And so what I, uh, what I, what, so if you want to know what I teach, ask my disciples or the people or even my opponents for that matter. Because I have been teaching openly and publicly. Then John writes, verse 22, When he had said these things, one of the officers standing, uh, standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, it is, is, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right... Why do you strike me? So one of the officers thought that Jesus' reply was obviously disrespectful to the high priest, so he slaps him in the face. He said, in effect, who do you think you are? Jesus' reply, again, called for them to return to the proper procedures of a trial. He challenged the officers to, to point out the wrong in his words. And if there was no wrong, to refrain from slapping him. And then finally, in verse 24, Aeneas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Because here's the deal. Caiaphas was the only one that could take something to Pilate. Because the Romans, they didn't see Aeneas as the high priest. They saw Caiaphas the high priest. So they needed Caiaphas to, to take the next step for them. In effect, we see Aeneas declaring that he wanted to destroy Jesus. Like a good movie scene, John is cutting back and forth to different characters and different places, but in the same time, in verse 25, we see now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of a man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. You know, two more questions about Peter's relationship with Jesus were fired at him, apparently in quick succession. Matthew tells us that in his growing um, desperation and irritation, uh, Peter issued his second denial in cursing, with cursing. In effect, uh, he's saying, I don't know the blankety-blank man. As Peter, the rock, who had made his confession of faith in Christ at Caesarea Philippi, Simon Peter, who later testified to seeing the majesty of Christ 
in the transfiguration. Now three times, not in front of Pilate, but in front of a servant girl at the door. Really a nobody. And he betrays Jesus with cursing. And as soon as the third denial was out of his mouth, the rooster began to crow, and thus fulfilling the warning that Christ had given earlier. So what does this tell us? What does this show us? I think it shows us something hideous. I think it shows us something we don't want to see. It shows us the darkness of the human heart. This shows us what people, people are, are capable of doing, even after making a glorious confession, even after swearing allegiance to Jesus and even ready to go to war over him. I will be with you till the end, Peter said. But then he bailed out. At that moment of truth, that's one thing it shows us. And we see later in this gospel, it shows us something else. Now, I'm not going to jump forward and, and teach that passage, as we'll get to it soon enough. But Peter is later restored. Now, at this point in the sermon, there might be some who try to jump to application. Or they, you might be saying, hey, give me application here. And... Many might even exhort you to be bold, be strong, be courageous. And they may say things like, don't deny Jesus. Don't be like Peter. You know, they may even reference things like Matthew 10, 33, where uh, Jesus says, but whoever denies me before men, I will also deny. Um, I, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And live with boldness. Now, although these things are true, and they are worthwhile exhortations, I don't think that's what this passage is driving us towards. We should exhort one another in this way. We should... I think the best application for us here is to behold the never-ceasing faithfulness of Christ. Which brings us to our first point this morning. If we are in Christ, He displays His relentlessly faithful devotion to us despite our fickle devotion to Him. This passage reminds us that this is the kind of person that Jesus died for. This is the kind of person that Jesus gave his ministry to. To bear witness to a dying world. This is the kind of person that Jesus forgave. And this is the kind of person that Jesus restored. And this is the kind of people he invites to his table. Not people who are always loyal, but but people who are humble. People who are, uh, who, 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 they're not sinless, but people who are contrite and, and who have been forgiven. And he invites them to eat and drink with him. To be strengthened by him. 
to be brought deeper into a relationship, a relationship he has with them. Friends, if, if you are in Christ and you totally blow it, and there will be days when you blow it. I mean, I was thinking about this just earlier, um, that there was a time early in my wife and I's marriage, before we had children, we would go to restaurants and we would see the table next to us, the, the mother and the father lashing out in anger at their kids, telling them to be calm, telling them to stop crushing chips and making a mess and telling them to stop fighting with their brothers. And they would lash out in anger and, and just totally make a scene. And I remember saying, we'll never do that. Never. Listen, you will blow it. You will yell at your kids. You will say harshly critical things to your spouse. You will commit the sin again that you swore to God and that you swore to yourself that you would never do again. And in those moments, God has given us messages like this. And he's given us messages like Romans 8 that there is... Therefore, if we are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8 even ends with there is no separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. I love what Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible. The way she ends up this beautiful picture of biblical theology and understanding that Every story whispers the name of Jesus, and she says this. God loves us. Nothing can ever, no, not ever, separate us from the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God he shows us in Jesus. So take heart in passages like this. If you're honest with yourself, you will see a little bit of yourself in Peter. God wants you to behold the relentlessly faithful devotion of his son. So take heart. John writes, continuing on, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter into the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Note that, Jesus, that the Jews who brought Jesus to Pilate did not go into his house. In doing so, they would have defiled and thus be prevented from eating the Passover meal, which lasted for seven days, but, but even doing it once would have defiled them so they wouldn't be able to participate in, in any of it. And these men were scrupulous to avoid any ritual defilement, even while they were carrying out the most vile act in human history. As they delivered the Lamb of God to be slaughtered, they made sure their hands were ceremonially clean. What does this tell us? Here are people who paid attention to the minute details of religion while their hearts were far from God. 
These Jews went through all the motions, maintained all the rituals. They kept themselves totally clean while they crucified the Son of God. Of course, we can look back from our vantage point in the 21st century and say what hypocrites those people were. But again, we need to look at ourselves honestly. We, instead of looking disdainfully at these people who betrayed Jesus, we have to see ourselves in that crowd. Because this is what fallen humanity is like. This is what fallen humanity does. John continued, verse 29, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said, uh, Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. See, the Jews knew they had no authority over the death sentence of Jesus. If the death penalty could only be applied under Roman law and order. So they came to manipulate Pilate by making Jesus out to be a threat to his political power. They began to appeal to Pilate's insecurities. But these verses highlight something really important for us to see. Which brings me to the next point that I want to pull from this passage. That is, self-righteousness and legalism are poison to the soul. And they drive us to hate the very idea of unmerited favor from God. You see, legalism and self-righteousness are displayed before our eyes in this ugly irony of these verses. The rulers of Israel refused to enter the governor's headquarters because of their scrupulous commitment to the demands of the law, not wanting to be defiled before eating the Passover, but they were unscrupulous in their commitment to rid the world of the one to whom the law points, the one who fulfills the demands of the law for us. You see, naturally, we don't like the idea of grace or unmerited favor. We naturally want to feel like we have some skin in the game. So we heap on all sorts of unnecessary demands. And, and legalism is not exclusive to doctrinal matters or biblical theological matters. Sometimes, I would say, and more often than not, it's applied to really practical things. R.C. Sproul has written an article on the different types of legalism. And here's what he says about this idea of practical legalism. He says, Some types of legalism add our own rules to God's law and treat them as divine. It is the most common and deadly form of legalism. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees at this very point, saying, You teach human traditions as if they were the word of God. 
We have no right to heap on restrictions on people where he has not stated restrictions. Each church has the right to set its own policies in certain ways. For example, the Bible says nothing about soft drinks in the church's fellowship hall. But a church has every right to regulate such things. But when we use those human policies to bind the conscience in an ultimate way, and, and in an ultimate way make, uh, make such policies determinative of one's salvation, we venture dangerously into territory that is God's alone. He even calls this blasphemy. Many people think that the essence of Christianity is following the right rules, even rules that are extra-biblical. For example, the Bible doesn't say we can't have a glass of wine with our dinner or say that we have to wear a tie to church or a jacket. We can't make these matters the external test of authentic Christianity. That, that would be a deadly violation of the gospel because it would substitute human tradition for the real fruits of the Spirit. Where God has given liberty, we should never enslave people to man-made rules. We must be careful to fight over this form of legalism. And we're all guilty of this. This is an easy thing to fall into. The reality is legalism and self-righteousness actually push us away from Jesus, not towards him. So let's continue working our way through this passage. Verse 33, John writes, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? This question indicates that, that Jesus' accusers, they, they did give Pilate some uh, sort of background before they took him to him. And clearly their case was political and not theological. They said to Pilate, he's, he's calling himself a king, and you, Romans, can't put up with that sort of thing. Uh, that, that's insurrection. So Pilate summoned Jesus, and he cut right to the chase. Are you the king of the Jews? Is it true what they say? In verse 34, Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Now, who's the interrogator here? Suddenly, Pilate was on trial before the judge of heaven and earth. Jesus understood the rules of evidence, and he was, and he knew that this hearsay convictions uh, were were prohibited. But Pilate responded like a seasoned, cynical politician. Verse 34, 35, Pilate answered, "Am I a Jew? For uh, your your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done?" Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not like your kingdom. My kingdom is not built on violence or blood or war. That's, that, that's the way the kingdoms of this world function. My kingdom 
is not like is not worldlike at all. My, my kingdom is not a worldlike kingdom. In other words, Jesus said that he did not plan to establish a kingdom by force. He had no intention of leading a rebellion against the Romans, no matter what the Jews might have been telling Pilate. So verse 37, Pilate, then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What did this response mean? Jesus acknowledged his royal mission. But he declared that he did not come to overpower the world, but to bear witness to the truth. He said, I came here to make plain the truths of God. Listen to what famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said about Jesus' words right here. He writes, Christ is a king. A king by force of truth in a spiritual kingdom. For this purpose, he was born. For this cause, he came into the world. Our Lord, in effect, tells us that the truth of God is the preeminent characteristic of his kingdom and that his royal power over men's hearts is through the truth of God. He dealt not with fiction, but with facts, not with trifles, but with infinite realities. He speaks not of opinions, views, or speculations, but of infallible truths. Jesus is king in his people's soul because his preaching has set us at rest on points of boundless importance. He has not given us well-chiseled stones, but real bread. There are a thousand things you may know, and you will, and you will be little the worse for not knowing them. But if you do not know what Jesus has taught, it will not go well with you. If you are taught of the, Lord's, uh, of the Lord Jesus, you will have rest for your cares, balm for your sorrows, and satisfaction for your desires. Jesus gives sinners who believe in him the truth of God they need to know. The assurance of sin forgiven through his blood. Favor ensured by his righteousness and having been secured by his eternal life. You see, Christ was born to establish a new kind of kingdom. His kingdom was to be restoring, redeeming, and reigning over the hearts of men. His kingdom was going to be a spiritual one. So, Christ's confession revealed a supreme truth, which brings me to the final point I want us to see from this passage. Jesus is the sovereign king of the world who came to reveal himself as our only hope in life and death. You see, Jesus was in control of Peter's denial. There was no point when he where this was catching God by surprise. He was in control of the unfairly corrupt trials that he's been a part of. 
He had a purpose for our hope. He is our only hope because he is the only one who kept the righteous requirements of the law. He is the only one who lived the perfect life in our place. He is the only one who could pay the perfect, righteous death penalty for us in our place. He's the only one who has conquered sin and death. And he is the only hope in life and death. This is the truth of the kingdom Jesus was building. There are nothing. We, we, are, we are nothing without Christ. Pilate was nothing without Christ. However, Pilate made an unwitting confession. Revealing a supreme truth about himself. Pilate's reply is full of sarcasm. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now it's impossible for me to believe that Pilate was asking Jesus to teach him the truth because he didn't even wait for Jesus' reply to that question. The uh, question was rhetorical. Pilate's question was the response of someone who had given up hope of finding truth in a world of skepticism. You see, in, his, in this cynicism, he was like so many people today. For ours is an age when truth is slain in the streets and people say truth is whatever you want it to be. That what you believe is true for you and what I believe is true for me. And that truth, reality is, truth is no longer objective. Francis Schaeffer, um, an English theologian, talks about true truth. Because he understood what the, the, that the issue of the day in regard to truth is whether there is an objective reality that is true for everyone. No matter who we are, where we live, or what we do, the same issue was on the front burner of Jesus' day. And Jesus said he was the witness of that true truth. In fact, he declared earlier in John's gospel, uh, John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. You see, Pilate went out and told the crowd, I find no fault at all. Pilate never said truer words than the words he said right here. He had evaluated the accusation. He had interrogated the prisoner. He had listened to Jesus' response. And his mind was made up. He saw no fault in Jesus because there was no fault in him. In an indirect way, the judge of the earth, this public person, Pontius Pilate, acknowledged the sinlessness of Christ. The man who stood before Pilate that day was truth incarnate and the lamb without blemish. This passage draws us to gaze on the wonder of Christ. His relentless pursuit and eagerness to forgive and extend grace. But it's also a reminder 
to keep watch on our heart because we want to heap on things other than Christ in our life. Christ is our only hope in life and death. Let's pray. Gracious God, we love you. And we thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word which calls us to believe and to rest in the work of Christ. Um, and we ultimately know that, that resting means we forsake and, and put aside anything else that we think that we can do to, to earn salvation, to earn your love, to earn your approval. Father, we know, I know, my own heart, the realities of my the broken state that I still live in that may not be bound by sin, but the presence of sin is still a reality. And I know there are going to be times when I blow it. There are going to be times when I seek to, to, to heap on demands of the law or heap, heap on demands of man-made laws even to find approval from you. God, help guard us from those things. Help us to see and rest in Christ and in Christ alone. And Lord, we ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.